Hello, everybody. Hello, friends. How are you doing today? I'd like to thank you for joining me. I'm humbled every time you guys take your time to come here and spend some time with me. I'd like to thank our executive producers for the show. We have Lady Janet and Lady Emily. They're the executive producers for the show. Thanks goes out to them. If you guys are interested in becoming an executive producer, uh, check out our cash app. Anything over 20, you're considered executive producer. You're Keeping the show on the air, I appreciate it. It's really hard for us to be monetized with the kind of information we cover and the kind of information we go over. Some of our, our videos are, but not many of them. We're, I'd also let, like to let you know that we're simulcasting today. If anything happens on YouTube, feel free to go over to our website, midnightrad.io. If you go on there, you're going to be able to see the live stream up in the corner right-hand part of the page. It says watch live. You can click on that and you'll see a box there with the video. Hit play. You're watching live on there. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to those that are listening to the live audio feed, which is a better idea to do if you're driving or if you're at work. You know, I don't want you taking your eyes off the road because of some of the information we go over. It's important that you subscribe, hit the bell, click all notifications so you can join in the conversation. In the conversation today, I'm going to start off with a brief history of shit. Now, this happened in the early colonies. And in those early colonies, there was a head of a ship, a ship's captain, if you will. His name was Jonathan Poop. And Poop was known to make sure that his ship, where he would trade back and forth with uh, the colonies and England, you know, the, the, the colonies, they would send over corn and, and uh, cotton and different things like that. And over in England, they would bring back tea and they would bring uh, manure because they didn't have enough animals. They didn't have enough manure. They didn't have enough fertilizer here in the States yet. So they got it from England. So this is what Jonathan Poop mainly traded in. And he was known to fill his ship beyond capacity to the point he was almost sinking the ship every time. He was known for that. And he was also known for something else. This one time, he was bringing over some tea. And tea back then, they were in big bricks. It's not like it is now. They would compress it into these big bricks. So he, once again, he loaded his ship to capacity. I've read where he even put some of the tea bricks. They did something to waterproof it, and they put it on the, on the deck of the ship outside. There was so much. The deck and the cabin and everything like that. That's what he did. He didn't sink the ship that time, but he brought it in, and there was something foul about the tea. Well, it turns out where he put the tea, he put the tea, he put the tea over the manure. So it made all of his tea taste funny. Matter of fact, everybody got really mad when they got their tea a couple weeks later. And it became known that it tasted like poop. And that was a new term that they used. Tasted like poop. And ever after that, every ever after that, they would take the boxes of manure and they would put on there and stencil on there and big, bright, red paint, S-H-I-T, shit. It stood for 
ship high in transport. In other words, put the poop above your tea so you don't have any unsavory flavors. A few years passed, and again, this is before the Revolutionary War. John Poop, who lost a lot of money on that one tea, he was still a ship's captain, still the head of the ship. But his loading up his ship far beyond capacity finally caught up with him, and he sank his ship. The lives of him and the few crew that he had were taken. And in the colonies, the few colonies that were affected that actually got the goods and a bunch of the prominent men are the ones that financed the trip, uh, the merchants. They were really upset about it because the inflation raised in their areas. So they were really upset about it. And that was his lasting memorial. After that, they called him a shithead. Are any of you buying this shit? We have a very good show, very important show for you today. Very important. You notice that's not my normal theme music. That is the theme music to a lost brother, the, the armchair survivalist. We're talking, we're going to talk to his son tonight. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. You are listening to Midnight Radio. I am your host, Jerry Adams. So I'm going to set this up for you guys. I needed to know some information about Idaho. We have people in the chat room from Ireland. Hello, everybody. Some from England, some from different parts of the United States. We even have some from Idaho. But as a writer, my mind wants to know everything. It wants to know everything about the background, all the surrounding circumstances. I just really want to know about everything. So to be able to do that, I remembered that, hey, I, I know somebody. I've talked to him in the past. His name is Kurt Wilson. He's an armchair survivalist. He's been in radio for many years. Me and him had experience together um, when I was running a radio station. I was a manager of a radio station back in 2008. And uh, he would have been perfect for this. So I tried to, I contacted him, I sent him an email, and I got a a message from his son back saying that, regretfully, his father was no longer alive. I listened to his last radio show, and uh, that was the last one. I noticed it had been a year, and this man faithfully, faithfully broadcast every week. He'd have one or two shows a week, and uh, at least one, and he did it for excuse me, about 30 years, Kurt Wilson. So I was hoping when I looked at his last show that he was still around, but unfortunately he wasn't. And that was, I was, that was the point of tears. I told you guys last episode that I went to the doctor. That's, that was true. And uh, I just had to hold it back and go to the doctor. But Eric Eric Wilson is here with us tonight. 
We're going to talk about his father, his father's life in broadcasting and his life in general and why, why it's still important and why he did was important. And he's going to tell us about the secrets of things that are going on and that have gone on there in that area of Idaho. Eric Wilson is from Quarter Lane, Idaho. That's where Kaylee Goncalves and Maddie Mogan were living. That's where their home was, and they were going to college, of course, in Moscow. So without further ado, everybody, let's say hello to Eric Wilson. Hey, Jerry, thanks for having me on this show. And that was uh, some nice things you said about my dad. Thank you. Your, your father was amazing. Um, I first met your father, or I didn't met him physically. I met him on the air. Man, it's just rough. The older you get, the more people pass away. I had a, a secretary, really. Her name was was Linda Coffey, and she booked us an interview with your father, who I was already impressed with. Uh, your father would have us rolling. Sometimes we would tune in right before we go live or something, and he was talking about Schumer hitting the fan. And uh, we just thought that was the most hilarious thing we ever, ever say. And, and there was other things he said too, and we'll get into that. But uh, we booked an interview with him, the first interview, and I didn't have a radio show at the time. I was just the producer of the radio show. It was actually my father who uh, was the talent and did the show. And the name of the show was Pops from Texas. So he interviewed your father, and your father was very behind the scenes, and even as he's being interviewed, he was very nice, very kind, very gracious, which was kind of a, a different side to him than you'd see on a show. And uh, for lack of a better word, on a show, he's really he was re- really hard-nosed and kind of like a blowhard. And when I say blowhard, I don't mean someone that doesn't back up what they say with facts, but just, you know, the impression. Um, always leaning forward, you know, Great voice, mm-hmm. one of the best voices I've ever heard in radio. Um, but to know him is different. And uh, you know, he was really nice, really gracious. We did the interview. It was great. Although I think, I think my father was a little bit rude, it seemed like, for some reason. But your father, you know, took it gracefully. It didn't bother him at all. And he didn't see it as being rude, I guess. And uh, it was a couple of months later, we booked an interview, and Right at that point of time, my life was falling apart. This is, and this was featured throughout your father's radio show at the time when the economy was collapsed. So this was 20, this was 2008. The economy was collapsing and it hit me hard. I lost everything I owned. I lost my car. I lost my wife, which turned out to be a wonderful thing. I lost, hell, I even lost my cat. And this was all this one time, this penultimate moment and I made a mistake about the time zone difference between you and me. And I was off by about an hour, so the show was over before I was ready for your father. And the show was ending. And I felt so bad about that. And uh, one thing about Kurt Wilson is if he was pissed off, he didn't mind telling you about it. Uh, <laughs> that was very true. <laughs> he told me about it in the chat room at the time, and he went on a show the the next night and he fried my ass like a couple of fine hamburger patties. And I was cool with that because I completely deserved it. I would have been mad if I was him. Um, you know, that's, that's regretful, but I understood, I, I completely understood. So that's, that's kind of my history with him. But for those of you that don't know the armchair survivalist, what he did 
and I read up on him extensively before the first interview. They'd called him the the Martha Stewart of of uh, survival, and he would show you. He would have these shows that would teach you certain things: how to survive in the winter, how to uh, weatherproof your house, how to weatherproof your car. And while he was talking about all this, he did it in such a way, and he involved Eric many times in his stories where he would talk about him shoveling snow and how there's things that you can put on your roof, uh, these wires across your roof that has a uh, current through it that would keep it melted off your roof so it didn't damage your roof. He would talk about the insulation you needed in your attic. Just little things, and all of that is still available. So that's his legacy, one of his legacies. But he was an incredible person. And uh, I didn't listen to his show all the time after that. I would pop in every few months or every few years to see how he was doing and his voice never changed he was always doing great so yeah kurt wilson was a hell of a man um so eric can you tell us why he started his career on the radio well his career on radio actually got technically went all the way back into the 70s um the specifics of it are unfortunately lost to time but he had been doing, he had a friend who was doing a morning talk show and basically needed a sounding board on there. And next thing he knew, he was opposite of him having this morning talk show. It was a brief thing. It was, if I recall what he told me, it was on and off about a year, year and a half, but it gave him the necessary basis to that. Uh, he also had experience in Hollywood as a, as a stuntman as, and an actor. And when we moved to California, to Modesto in, uh, in the nineties, uh, he helped set up a morning talk show host. that was, well, he was not very good. <laughs> he was very boring, very bland, but he was the only talk show that was on from 7 a.m. To, to 9 a.m. right before the Rush Limbaugh show t- took off. So Kurt just took it upon himself to start calling in and talking with them because he was bored and had nothing else to do in the morning. Mm-hmm. And they talked about everything because it was a no-subject show. Next thing you know, the producers are calling him and saying, hey, you know, you guys, you're, you're talking about political stuff, which is impactful. People are listening. They're wanting to hear more. But at the time, they had like only a, like an 800-watt station, 1,000-watt station of that. Over the next few years, because of the popularity from not just Kurt calling in, but also the radio ads for our business, Survival Enterprises, that he cut and uh, submitted himself, it helped grow. I want to say it was KFIV, but I may have the call letters wrong. Uh, helped him grow from being just barely a thousand watt station to a station which covered basically all of Stanislaus County and the Central Valley. And it became a really big name. It also was popular for all the reasons. He was very politically incorrect. And in the 90s, with the Clinton administration in, politically incorrect most definitely got attention. <laughs> yeah, that's where it was at. As soon as they lifted the the ban. There was a there was a law to where you couldn't uh, talk a certain way against other political parties, or uh, it was an advertising rule, really. 
and they lifted that. Remember, remember when they had the old commercials? It was about hand soap or whatever, and they would talk about Brand X. That was a part of that rule, and it changed, and that's what brought L- Rutch Limbaugh, you know, into power. I guess you could say, and once they could talk about whatever they wanted. I I vaguely remember hearing about that law. I didn't know much about it. I was a I was a kid then. I was only born in the eighties. I'm sadly classified as a millennial, <sighs> but don't hold that against me. <laughs> You're actually just a few years <laughs> off from me. But I feel like I've known you so long because yeah. your father talking about you. <laughs> so your father well, in, in radio, he, so let's talk about survival enterprises a little bit. How long, all right. Um, so you're currently running that with your mother? Yes. Survival enterprises is a, you know, it sells freeze dried goods uh what what other things does it sell i know it sells radios too so presently what our primary inventory is is actually health and nutritionals supplements and we do have a supply of mountain house foods in buckets the prepackaged buckets you can just grab and go we do have a couple pallets of that we managed to get in, in before they had no stock left uh, we've got some Baofeng ham radios and uh, AMFM shortwave uh, survival radio, you know, the kind with the solar panel and the crank on it. Yes. That's basically the extent of the type of, oh, and water filtration. That's basically the extent of it right now. Survival Enterprises was created uh, back, well, when I was born. Kurt had had issues working for other people, uh, as I'm sure you could imagine a strong personality like that would have taking orders from idiots in charge. And he got the short end of the stick too many times. And he said, forget this. I'm, I'm taking over. I'm going to be in charge of my own destiny and my own family. And he did. He, they did traveling around the U S they sold uh, special artwork, a special type of artwork. It was a a laser printing. It was a new technology at the time uh, where they would take a photo, scan it and blow it up without losing any, uh, any quality. And so that uh, they also, they also sold seafood on street corners one time, well, more than once Uh, all these different things. And then he settled upon the idea of being a gunsmith. And that he excelled at because he was very mechanically minded and very precise in his details. That's a whole story unto itself, but that is what helped him set up and establish the premise of survival enterprises. His premise was to help people survive. And our motto is in the jungle called life, only the tigers survive. And his point was to make as many people tigers as possible. At the time, it was guns. Then it evolved into other self-defense, non-lethal self-defense. We carried stun guns, pepper spray. Uh, In the 90s, we became the largest civilian-owned armory and refinishing company in the west half of the U.S. Our... (laughs) 
our firearms that we did and sold are still in military museums. They've been awarded as uh, retirement presents to five-star generals. I mean, we commanded a lot of a lot of respect because of what he built from nothing. He did. And then when he moved up, a lot of that I still find today from people I just mentioned his name and they knew him by reputation alone and I never met them and he never met them. When he moved up here, uh, moved up here in uh, the first half of 1999 and we continued doing the firearms for a few years, but there were some issues. The feds didn't like us very much and set about attempting to destroy uh, Kurt's reputation and career and basically brought us back down to nothing because of it. And in turn, we cut away from doing the gun business and swapped over at the time. We'd already been moving over because of the Y2K situation, moving over into carrying long-term storage foods and other survival products like that. But it was around 2010-ish that we started realizing that some stuff we'd been carrying health-wise since the early 90s sort of built the core of the premise in helping people survive. You can put a gun in somebody's hand, but if they're sick and falling over, the gun is useless. So it became more important to help a person survive in their body and take care of themselves. So when Kurt was doing his radio shows, he would usually tie in of like, you know, cold weather, making sure to take care of yourself because you're not getting enough vitamin D, you're not getting enough of the other nutrients and stuff you would get normally in warm, in warm months. So that had been the thrust now for over 15 years is really focusing on health and nutrition. And to that end, his, Research was very in-depth on every product we ever carried and sold to the point that the majority of what we have, he would end up talking to the guy that either grew it himself and harvested from the ground or the guy who formulated it in the facility. He was, was very intelligent and can hold his own with quite a few big brainers out there. I know one of the aspects that he was really involved in and had a lot of contacts was shipping. He could tell you what what was waiting in port to be shipped in, where there would be a shortage. And I, I remember from 2008 and even his last episode, he did November in November of last year. He was always talking about there's going to be shortages. What are you going to do? You know, you felt like there was this great impending doom. And, and then you look back, you notice that he was right, but it wasn't as bad as he said. But then a year later, of course, it's gotten worse, you know, especially with shrinkflation. Um, yeah, and, and that all ties into the boiling frog syndrome. The powers that be have been in charge of so many factors that they're making sure that we don't fly off a cliff. Instead, they're gradiating, gradiating us down with this shrinkflation to accept that we're not going to have anything but the food that they let us have and that it's going to cost us an arm and a leg just to barely have bird feed available for us. 
Yeah, it's a form of money manipulation, and I don't like to talk bad about YouTube because I really appreciate what they've done for me. But at the same time, there's money manipulation as it uh, involves YouTube right now and what you're able to say and what you're not able to say. I know your father went through that because he was on YouTube, and there's certain things you can't say or else you know you get hit by them. I know he's not the person to have backed off from those things, but they control you by money. Talking about shrinkflation, my brother the other day sent me a picture. I can't remember if it was Hormel or what company it was, but you guys know. So the company that had the ribs, you know, the pressed together mm -hmm. ribs that look like McRibs, and he got a pack. He was going to have himself a, a fake poor boy McRibs, what he called it. And he opened it up, and the McRibs were shrunk. They were half the size. They were the size of Snicker bars. He said it took two on there to fit between his buns. And we're talking side by side. But he said they had yep. the same picture on the package, you know, where it has in little white text in large just to show texture. And uh, <laughs> Gotta love Photoshop, right? Yeah, and, and what about your bars of soap? I mean, and then your soap bottles that are skinny in the middle. Um, there's a lot of viral TikTok videos where it's showing popcorn that a medium and a large are the same size, but the the actual bucket is shaped differently. This is really an epidemic now, right now. It is. And too many people are staying willfully blind to it because they weren't taught to be critical thinkers and to ignore the minutia of what's in front of them. And you see it every single day. That's one thing that your father surely did. Um, I want to talk about... Idaho here for a little bit. He would always talk about you guys having to shovel snow. <laughs> Is it snowy there now? No, it's well, it, it put little light dusting throughout, uh, throughout Hayden earlier this morning, but it's not snowing right now. It's suspected to have to snow starting sun, uh, Saturday night for basically on and off for the next week. Oh Lord. Anything between now and then that happens is just going to be up to mother nature. We have this uh, environmental situation up here called microclimates because of all the various valleys and mountains and lakes and rivers. You could drive for 30 minutes in one direction and you will not have the, the same climate. Like it, it's a joke that you come to Idaho to experience all four seasons and sometimes in the same day. <laughs> well, I don't know how to feel about this because it seems like you're going to have a white Christmas and I'm going to have a dirty, dirty brown Christmas here in the Badlands of Texas. Well, I'm looking forward to it. The harsher the winter we have, the greater the chance we'll drive out the, the transplant flatlanders that don't want to be here. So you live in Hayden. How far is that from Coeur d'Alene? Uh, depending what road you take, Hayden is technically about 10 minutes from the edge of uh, Coeur d'Alene because you have Coeur d'Alene, which is nestled, started nestled up against Coeur d'Alene Lake, hence the name of the city. And as you go north from there, you hit Milton Gardens, which is just a thin strip of a, of a city. And then right past Dalton Gardens is Hayden. And then you keep going north, you hit Rathdrum, Athol, all the way up north to the Canadian border. And if you go west from Coeur d'Alene, you hit Post Falls, 
and then you hit Liberty Lake in Washington, and then Spokane Valley, and then Spokane. So how big it's, is... It's not... How I was big about is, to say, it's not big. Okay. <laughs> well, no, Hayden like the isn't. entire pop... Hayden? Yeah, no, Hayden isn't big. I, I think the total population for this region in North Idaho is... Don't quote me on this, but probably less than 150,000. Maybe, maybe more with all the new uh, people moving in, but I honestly don't know the exact amount. It's not, it's not huge. Spokane is substantially larger by population than we are. What about Quarter Lane? How big is that? Well, that's what I mean. When I said the population number, I meant for all of North Idaho, oh, you're talking about border south to. Lane. Somebody told me that where you live is kind of like what Southern Alaska. You're, are you close to Alaska? Or does it just feel that way? Yeah, I think we're about 2000 miles from Alaska, but I, my geography is not the best. We've got Canada between us and Alaska. Well, that's not much. <laughs> uh, no, Canada is bigger than America. Yes. And but colder. A lot colder. Like yeah. Siberia. But you're Very. but you guys you guys, since you've been born, you've 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 been used to this and even better than most how to train for this. Uh I'm sure I don't know, but I know I am here, especially after we had the freeze a couple years ago. If all of your power goes out, are you okay with heating your house? Most people are, or I can't say most, but those that no, are but we've lived up here since 99 we've had multiple power outages the if you have uh, gas lines uh almost all the gas lines are run off of separate power and generators built into the systems themselves so as long as you have gas lines you basically do have a way to heat uh, a lot of people have generators so that they can power their systems if something goes down and more than a few people have functional fireplaces and supply of wood. What can you tell us about Moscow, Idaho? Have you been following the case down there about the Moscow four, about that tragedy that happened down there? I I've been following it some definitely. It's a little hard not to follow it. It's damn near on the nose of everything around here. Everybody's been mentioning it, talking about it getting their two cents in on it. So it's when you first found disturbing. out about this, when you first found out about this, it's got to be different for you because you're, you're right there. You know, Kaylee and Maddie, they're from quarter lane and you, you live right there. What were your feelings on this when you first find found out about it? As soon as I heard the details beyond four killed in Moscow, I was like, Hmm. I immediately, because I used to live in Hollywood, I visited for uh, for a bunch of training I was doing at the time. I so stories like that in Hollywood barely get a gla a, a passing glance. Oh, four killed, okay, whatever. Up here, four killed, police looking for suspect, and you're like, hmm, that gets a little bit more attention and hits people a little closer to home. Of bad shit can happen anywhere. It said that it was about seven years before anybody was murdered in that town since someone's, someone was murdered. 
Yeah, I, it, I won't say Moscow is a small town per se, but it's it's definitely smaller than any major metropolitan region. It definitely classifies as rural by the layout and and uh, the people that live there. So something like this is, well, it hits the community. It it opens their eyes and makes them start seeing the uglier side of humanity that most of them had forgotten about. All the way around, there's a lot of ugly stuff going on. Not only the crime that happened, um, I don't know if you've heard about the YouTuber Joseph Morris. He faked some evidence that he said was uh, recording from the scene and I believe Ickmel's on Banfield show tonight roasting his ass. Um, so that's interesting. But, I mean, just ugly all around, and that guy is from that big state of that big country of Canada. Um, uh, sad to hear that. I heard something about that in passing from a friend earlier today, but I had no idea what it was about. Well, not only... <sighs> Some people are disgusting. It's one, it's one thing being incorrect of something you said. It's a whole other issue if you pull up a news article, edit it in your browser, and then pass it off as news. And I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. about that because you're, you're, you're a native, you're local, and as pissed off as all of us around here are from you know him even being associated with YouTube, um, I imagine for you there'd be a special kind of anger. Oh, I had a lot of interesting life experiences, and one of the things that I learned is I reserved my true anger for personal enemies. (laughs) They're the only ones that are deserving of that. I look at situations like what you just described and I'm, I'm disappointed in them as a human. I would call it disappointed in their, in their history and in their interaction and that they're willing to basically sell what counts as their integrity for some more monetization and clicks and likes and discussion. I would call it dis- disgust and disdain. I just, it formed in my mind as disgust and disdain. And, and it absolutely against what your father stood for. He wasn't afraid. Oh, 100%. To, he wasn't afraid to get the boot to, to keep his morals. Matter of fact, that's how he got bounced from GCN at the time. That's where you heard, I first watched him. He's on GCN. He, um, he would talk about Alex Jones, who's the main one bringing money in there at GCN. And there were some other political reasons, too, that he left. But that was one of the main reasons that he always talked about. And guess what? A trillion dollars later, who was right? Kurt Wilson. <laughs> we were. Yeah. Uh, there. So that was a special time when the, the Sandy Hook thing happened. It was a special time in radio. Uh, because we would have to, and your father included, we would have to get up early and get all the, the news of the day, and then we'd see what Alex Jones was talking about. And he was the first one, 7 a.m., to be talking about Sandy Hook. Five minutes in, he was saying it wasn't real. And we were disgusted and almost, I felt like I'd been kicked in the stomach that he was saying this. And your father roasted him next on his next show. But for me personally, to go up here and say something like that was faked, I mean, it wouldn't, I wouldn't say something like that in a million years unless I drove down there personally and knew it myself. It was just, it was horrible and there's no excuse for it. And, um, that's all I have to say about that. I, I, I do. I do agree. I agree that Alex definitely goes overboard basically all the time. Uh, when Fukushima happened, 
man, he was like on continually just yelling to everybody who lives. If you're on the West coast, you need to leave now. There is a cloud of deadly radiation coming. It's going to kill you. You're all going to die. We got my, my at tablets. least a dozen. Yeah. No, where it's just literally like radiation is so bad. Your skin's going to melt off your bones. It's some other garbage like that. We got dozens of calls from uh, good customers of ours who lived all along the West coast. Uh, who had listened to Alex and they were freaking, we're talking full panic attacks saying if there's a, asking if there's anything that they can do and this and that, and we were calling them down each of them. And it, it did cause enough of a stir though, in terms of what one person was saying versus what another person was saying that Kurt took it upon himself uh, to actually drive west to Seattle, and then he drove the entire coast all the way from Seattle all the way down to San Diego and then all the way back up and then back over, and he had uh, active Geiger counters running the whole time. And accepting background radiation, mm-hmm. nothing. The whole trip, and that tri- trip took him a week and a half to do. That's kind of man and your at father was. Pardon? That's the kind of man your father was. We're talking about, about morals. He would never compromise his morals, especially not for money or anything else. Exactly. And it was the information he was getting was so conflicted that he finally said, you know what? I can't rely on these sources. Nobody's giving me a solid straight answer I can trust to report on. So I'm going to go find it out myself. And he did. Now, there was truth in the uh, radioactive flotsam that uh, came from the tsunami. Uh, That was real. Uh, That kept washing up, though, over in Alaska, and only a little bit came up near, I think it was, whatever that region is north of Seattle. Uh, And it was actually had been tracked, and as soon as it came near the shore or came on the shore, it was uh, accumulated and, and... taken away and wherever the heck they take the radioactive stuff, radioactive material. That was uh, a realist thing, but that getting up in the atmosphere and traveling thousands of miles across the ocean and raining down on the West coast, it didn't happen. Your father never compromised his morals. I didn't mean to talk about Alex Jones, but just to, to let people know how your father was, I want to ask you because we talked about this and you opened my eyes Gonna, I want to ask you about some of the politics in Moscow, uh, the politics that you've heard about the police department down there. Um, so they didn't have a murder in, it's been seven years, but they had deaths that they didn't call murders. So I want to have this discussion, but before I do, Eric, I got a clip from your, your father's last broadcast and I want to play that clip and then we'll come back. Okay. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Armchair Survivalist. My name is Kurt Wilson. I'm the Armchair Survivalist, and today is November the 7th in the year 2021. Welcome to the show. But I do, unfortunately, have some bad news. Welcome to the National Intel Report. I'm your host tonight, Steve Elkins. The date is November 5th, 2021. The rain is pouring down here in Florida. It's been pouring all day. Tears falling from heaven, some may say. I'm here under a very strange circumstances tonight. 
I'm here with a saddened and a heavy heart to tell you that Mr. John Stadmiller had passed away this afternoon around 12.35 Eastern Standard Time. Not from COVID. So John Stadmiller is dead. He had a upper respiratory uh, infection that he'd had for weeks and weeks. And he went on a trip. When he came back, he had a massive coronary. That, which That's what killed him, is the coronary. I knew John personally. Him and I were both on GCN at the same time. Uh, and we both got booted off because uh, neither of us liked Alex Jones. John was a little more uh, outlandish than I was, and he wasn't afraid to say so on the air. And that was one of the problems he had. He, he didn't uh, he didn't edit himself. There was no filter there. So uh, I, I never did get on his network because he didn't have a, a time slot that I would fit into, even though almost every year he'd call me up and say, Hey, Kurt, let's get you on here now. Anyway, so John's gone. And slowly but surely, they're, they're picking us off. I hate to say it, but this is the way it, it's uh, working now in this communist nation that we have. So, uh, Godspeed, John. We'll see you next time. That was from his last broadcast. It's very haunting how there was another radio personality that he was giving a send-off. Um, I listened to this whole show, and the whole show is very haunting and ominous. Yeah, it was it was sobering up in the in the week after Kurt passed that because uh, I was reaching out to everybody that he had a number for, and uh, some of those numbers, about three of those numbers, came up uh, with other people answering them saying that they had passed away. And in the next, before the end of the year, uh, we had gotten some other calls because we kept Kurt's number active for a while and a lot of people had his number still. Uh, there were some calls from other radio hosts and I don't quite remember the names because there's a bit of a, a blur in that time period, if you will, for me. Uh, other radio hosts who had passed away. Uh, some would say that they were targeted, and while I can't speak to some of them, I do know that uh, they're, the type of infection that was going around affected a lot of people. Uh, it affected us as well, and it was more of a like a shotgun effect. And I know that from November to December, there was at least a few hundred thousand people in across the U.S., who did get sick and who did die specifically with those exact symptoms in, uh, in mind. The symptoms that he said, he was talking about Joe Statmeyer, Joe Statmeyer. He, those are the same symptoms your dad had. Isn't it correct? Uh, I don't know the, the symptoms entirely saying an upper respiratory infection is very, very broad. Because uh, you could get everything from bacterial, viral, and hell, even fungal that can infect any portion of that. Um, I know that what we had and what a couple others had were viral in nature. There's plenty of discussions that can go down the rabbit hole towards things involving heart and blood from the respiratory infections. Um, but there's plenty of suspect situations on it. I can tell you this much. When Kurt recorded that show, he was sick. Mm -hmm. We were all sick. And uh, it was a blessing that the shop itself was closed because if he'd had to deal with customers, he would not have been able to 
get the time together to put that show together. Because as it was, a show like that would normally take him about eh, four to six hours to record and cut. That show took him about two and a half days, at least, to uh, record and cut because he had to keep re-recording because he was having, he was coughing a lot. That's why it sounds, some of it sounds so stilted and chopped up as it was. It was a good show. It was clear, uh, better than I ever remember it. I mean, not that it was ever bad, but I mean, it was it was the best. It was good. So, let's let's talk about some of the things we talked about before in our conversation. Was Moscow, Idaho, the things you've heard uh, about the way the police department is run, and then we'll go into a conversation about the FBI there in Idaho. And the way the city is run, there's a lot of speculations here, and a lot of people are sending me information. I'm still going through it, and I'm still going through all your emails and all your messages. By the way, if you guys have a voicemail, I'm not going to open up the phone lines because we have a lot of stuff to go over in a little time today, but the, the voicemail line is open. You can call that if you have a question for our guest, Eric Wilson, and we're going to play that before we leave here. So, Eric, what can you tell us about the politics of the city of Moscow? Well, I can only speak on secondhand knowledge. I've only right. driven through Moscow once, but I've living in Coeur d'Alene since 99. I've known quite a few people that both grew up and live there and have worked there. Uh, from everything I have been told, the Moscow Police Department is woefully incompetent for everything. I mentioned last night to some friends of mine about that I was looking at it and they were like, Oh my God, these guys about the only thing that they're good at doing is giving out tickets for you walking on the wrong side of the sidewalk <laughs> or a broken taillight. They, 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 they couldn't read. And as one person would put it, they couldn't follow. They couldn't pour piss out of a boot. If the instructions were on the heel, they're that bad. So having heard about, how badly they contaminated the crime scene, how they screwed everything up, boxed the evidence and gave it to the parents from what I understood. I mean, it, it's been one train wreck after another with, with what their investigation has been. And it's an interesting situation because it's a college town, but from what I've been told, there's a family that basically owns most of the property and run all the car lots. And they, in turn, politically, financially, I mean, own the political and law enforcement because of it. I know those are damning accusations. I'm just passing on what I've been told. Like, yeah, so these are wild-ass speculations, wild-ass theories, crazy-ass rumors. You've come to the right place to give those. Everybody <laughs> knows we're Fruit Loops here. It's all right. Um so uh, this is where I'm going to ask for, for the people that are listening to this to help me. I'm, I want, I'm going to show you guys, and I'm not saying that this is the car lot, the family that owns this car lot, but uh, the name of it is University Auto Sales there in uh, Moscow. And I'm wondering if this is the one. It doesn't have anything on their website about what family it is that owns it. Let me type this in real quick. But I know we have a lot of cyber sleuths that are listening to us right now that can help us come up with a name. 
a name behind this place. University Auto Cells. Here we go. And this is it. Let me show you guys. I know you guys can help me. You guys help me out a lot. And uh, here we go. This is University Auto Cells. I think it might be this one. I'm not sure. I want to know. And what I'm going to do, because there was deaths, mysterious deaths that happened. One was an overdose. Somebody, one was an overdose. One was supposedly another overdose and somebody found in a creek. And I want to see if these have any relation to this family there in Moscow, Idaho. And I do not believe that this is, has anything to do with the Christ Church down there. A lot of people were saying that. That might be a red herring. I don't know. But I haven't been able to get a lot of solid information other than political information about that. So, again, if you guys could check that out, see what family owns this, that would help out. Again, we're just uh, just checking. So, Eric, i got to ask you this. So, it's my understanding that the FBI became involved early on this, early in this investigation. It's also my understanding that the FBI, once they're involved, they completely take over. And I don't think Moscow would, the Moscow PD would have a problem with that since they get that extra funding. I think that, um, yeah, they don't want to blow their whole budget for the whole year in a a month or two. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. So to me, here's here's what it looks like to me, and I'm kind of upset about it. Um, but the FBI is playing all of you and all of us as a bunch of stooges. They're using they're using the Moscow Moscow Police Department as a patsies, and they're making them look like the three stooges, and they're telling them what to say. And of course, the chief the chief there is having to take take the brunt of the communication issue when it's not a communication issue. They say one thing and they pull it back. They say one thing and they pull it back and they change it. And I think they're putting out red herring information. This is what what a lot of our listeners and viewers are telling me, and they're saying that the white Hyundai Elantra they're looking for is uh, is a red herring, fake information, just to confuse us that are looking at this case and talking about it. We don't know, we don't know uh, east from west and up from down because of the information they're giving us, and what they do give us, they pull back, and then there's other stuff they're lying about. And it pisses me off. <sighs> I wouldn't be surprised. Unfortunately, there's a degree of misdirection that is useful in uh, in cases like this. I mean, if they sure. say, "Yeah, we have a suspect identified, and we're looking for him, spe- him specifically," uh, the, what they've done is just tip their hand that they're looking for the guy, and he could go to the ground, or he'd know how to change his appearance or something, disguise his appearance or something like that and they'd lose his trail and never find him. So I could understand from a, from a strategic point of view the game they're playing. No, I don't like it any more than you do, and it sucks. And I, I don't trust the FBI as far as I could throw them. I have not had good dealings with them in the past, and not many people have, actually. Uh, but you were right that the Moscow Police Department doesn't have the manpower experience or budget to deal with an investigation like that. But it does definitely raise some red flags because about the only reason that FBI gets involved is because they're the federal 
Bureau of Investigation, not the Idaho Bureau of Investigation. Even though they said that this is not associated with any other cases, it does bring some questions. You know what? what if they're going after this because it bears a similar resemblance to other cases around the nation? That's a good point. There are similar cases in Washington and Oregon where Moscow PD said they're similar and there's you know similarities, but we don't think it's the same at this time. But you're right, and I, I want to ask you about that. And I do understand what you're saying about the FBI, um, you know, holding things back. And I, I don't have a problem with that. What I'm really talking about, there's, there's a story right now. They were talking about the blood that was oozing down the back wall. And we did an investigation of that. Somebody sent me the paperwork of the actual paperwork from the house being built. And it's all electric heating. So it's not uh, heating oil that was dripping down. Then this is unverified. There was an article that came out. Because there's an un, just some random uh, everyday jacker smacker on YouTube, not YouTube, but Twitter, that posted on a post that that um, Brian Enton made about the blood, and saying that that was Photoshop fake and it wasn't real. So that's unverified that it wasn't real. But I'm thinking that could possibly not be real, and that's a misdirection by the FBI some way to make everybody look like a bunch of jackasses. Because Brian Enton, he's there, he's there with News Nation. He's there in front of it every day. You could just look and see if the blood is still there or not. So little bits of information like that that they're they're misdirecting, that that doesn't need to happen. Whether they have the suspect or not doesn't need to happen. Um, the reason why the FBI is there, is that because it's a potential federal case with the serial killer that's in three states? We got Oregon, Washington, and Idaho, and that would be enough. Uh, or do you think it's because it had a murder close to a university, and that's what triggered the ability for the FBI to be there? It's real hard to say because I actually don't know. I'm not familiar enough with uh, pr- with uh, seniority laws for law enforcement like this to be able to say one way or the other. Okay. It does always seem suspect, and as <laughs> As Kurt liked to say, where there's smoke, there's fire. And if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. So here we have the FBI investigating a, a local murder spree for, for right there that are Idaho natives. And yeah, it occurred near, but not on university grounds. Am I correct? Yes, it, it occurred near university grounds. By my understanding of jurisdiction, that puts it squarely in the local uh, local police's back, um, backyard. So, I mean, they could have requested the FBI come in. I believe they can do that without it needing to have any federal laws broken. But as you also pointed out, they basically showed up out of the blue and was like, boom, we're here, and took over the investigation. That seems either A, they were the person of interest they were aware was going to strike here, or B, they were waiting for this for a case like this to pop up and had the team ready to go. Maybe it's a case they'd been working on. Supposedly that they would be working on these murders, you'd think. You know, there's a lot of people talking about 
how dangerous it is for everybody to speculate about this and talk about this. Just leave it to the FBI. Just leave it to us. Um, this doesn't need well, to be. Well, there's a few reasons why. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is, this is North Idaho, and it's a, fair, it's a fairly conservative lower estimate to assume safely. Seven out of ten people are armed or have guns in their possession. So if a guy's name or a gal's name or somebody's name came up that was potentially responsible for this, somebody who's got a little bit more fire in them uh, is, would very easily take the law into their own hands. So I can see law enforcement playing their cards close to their vest so that they can actually track this person down and arrest them rather than go searching for their remains. That's true. That is absolutely true. And that made me think about everybody has a gun there. And um, how many people have K-bars, do you think? K-bar is a very, very specific knife. I can tell you that in the whole time I've been out here, up, up here, I've probably seen maybe a total of a dozen people openly uh, wearing K-bars. I mean, other knives, utility knives, hand-homemade knives, uh, custom Damascus knives even. But K-bars specifically, it's not, they ain't as popular as they used to be. K-bars got popular because of the military aspect of it, but people realized there's other knives out there. Nothing against K-bars. I love K-bars, but there really are better knives out there than K-bar. There are. All right. So you said you have a history with the FBI. I know a little bit about that. Uh, I don't think we have time to go into that, and I'm sure that's because your father. And any time you're into gun cells, they're going to they're gonna look into that. But somebody sent me an email, and guys, you, got, you can always send me an email, and I respond to it. But they, they wanted me to look into the 31 members. I'll pull this up for everybody now. 31 members of the White Nationalist Patriot Front arrested <laughs> near the Idaho Pride event. And uh, I want you guys to look. I'm showing the video, the, the uh, picture right now to everybody watching. Look at how in shape these men are. Would you see this? Also make sure to, to, to point out how utterly identical all of their equipment and gear all is. All blue shirts. They got and the how high- new it is how absolutely new every single one of those is. I'm very familiar with, uh, with that case, with, uh, that situation. So laugh my ass off from then till now. So I want you to tell <laughs> us about that. I got a clip from NPR, which is also working with the FBI and everything to guide and dis, uh, you know, dissipate anything. All right, here we go. Police arrested 31 members of a white nationalist group known as the Patriot Front yesterday in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. The charge, conspiracy to riot. They were believed to be headed to a pride event. The arrest capped what had been months of false rumors, growing tensions, and rising concern that the event could turn violent. NPR's domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef is in Coeur d'Alene and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Odette, let's start with the arrest. So first, who are the Patriot Front? Oh, you're not hearing it? No. Well, that's fascinating. Everybody else heard it. So can you tell us about they basically what they were doing when they set this up? Is they're saying these 31 members are from the White Nationalist Patriot Front? 
arrested near so, the right event. They set that yeah, up. Yeah, the, uh, the Sons of Liberty or something like that, I think, was the name they used. I believe so. So we had this drag event going on downtown. None of us were very happy about it, but uh, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, let the guy who thinks he's a woman go shake his ass on a stage and see how many people get disgusted, that sort of thing. Well, a lot of people got upset about it, and there was some chatter online that there was going to be a group coming into town. Now, this is not a mystery. Like, literally, there were groups all over saying that they were going to come in and start a problem. Well, the night before the event, uh, somebody had called the police and said that they saw a convoy of vehicles show up at this particular hotel. And so the sheriffs put not put some eyes out and watched them. What they what these people did was they showed up the night before the event, uh, checked into a hotel, and in the morning somebody went and rented, rented a U-Haul truck, and then all these guys come out of the hotel dressed alike, load some stuff into the U-Haul, and just sort of idle their way downtown. Well, the sheriff was having none of that, so. Right before they hit the downtown area, they swarmed on that like ugly on an ape. And they made sure they had all the press coverage for it, too, because from what I heard through the grapevine, the sheriff knew who was behind this and wanted to make an example out of them. So you, most of you probably seen the video where they uh, popped a vehicle, had guns on them, got them all out and zip-tied them. Well, there were some local videos coming around from people who were there active. I literally got a text the moment the vehicle was pulled over by somebody downtown saying, you're not going to believe what I just saw. And I was watching the live streams. Uh, after they get everyone out and they're zip tied on the ground and uh, this one sheriff is going through checking everyone for uh, doing the second double check on body pat down. Somebody from the crowd says, you know, these are all feds, right? And he's, Somebody off camera who was a sheriff, uh, unidentified, said, yeah, we all know that these are feds. Well, shortly after that, their mugshots were released to the public. I mean, <laughs> it was uh, unusual how quick that was, but yeah, they have the rumor same mill boots. has it the sheriff was not pleased about the feds trying to stage a false flag event in his backyard. And he was not part of it, and he wanted to send the message this was not allowed at all. So their bug shots were released to the press, which in turn, you know, everyone got. I know some people that uh, do investigations into where these people have been, and to a man, every single face was uh, facial recognitionally attached to photos from Antifa riots around the nation with just all of them, every single one of those men, their face has been at an Antifa riot. So these were in professional instigators and agitators that were federal agents. Wow. Of course, they're not going to get punished for it, but the way that they deal with the exposure like this is they just fade into the background until people forget because you got to admit, most Americans have the memory of a goldfish, you know, especially up until the next election cycle. 
There's a lot going on. I just wanted to show everybody the dishonesty of the FBI. I'm, I know, I know gear from my military time and look at their boots. Mm-hmm. Look at their hats. Uh, and what you also not seeing, at least I don't know if that video shows, because uh, I'm not on the video stream, is in the back of the U-Haul was also uniform-sized, quote-unquote, homemade acrylic riot shields and uh, riot batons. They they came to cause a problem, straight up. Uh, it, was, it wasn't even a question. And that's why the sheriff locked it down and said, no, <laughs> not happening. All right. Um, is there anything else? Uh, do you guys in the chat room have any questions here? Uh, does anybody, you guys can call in if you, and leave a voicemail if you have a question for Eric right here. Does anybody have an Eric? We're starting, we've got about five more minutes before we have to shut it down. So I'm going to ask everybody that. Somebody said you lost me at Antifa. That's all right. <laughs> all right. So what about hunting? How many is hunting prominent there? And yes, yes, most definitely. It is very prominent up here. <laughs> this is, this is the, the redneck region of the Northwest period. In fact, I've been told by people that visited from Texas who thought they were rednecks, they couldn't hold a candle to the rednecks we have up here. So I guess it's truly correct. The rednecks are everywhere. Um, (laughs) I heard several psychics say that they felt like the person was wearing combat fatigues. Uh, how, how, I mean, no, here in Texas, everybody's wearing fatigues, uh, not necessarily combat. I mean, hunting fatigues. What about there in Idaho? Do you guys wear hunting fatigues very much? Most people who buy hunting fatigues will reserve them specifically for exactly that hunting. It's not something they would normally wear around. We have enough seasons here that, uh, people will buy season specific clothes and wear it rather than, you know, something they'll wear year round. Now, depending on the camel pattern, um, I'll say that in all the time I've lived up here, it's not something you see regularly. Like, especially with the younger generation, you don't see camel or combat fatigues of any type or model being worn by them unless they're active, uh, National Guard, military of some sort. We do have... uh, uh, the Air Force Base over west of Spokane, and we do have military convoys and military stuff that goes through here. But accepting that, really not something you see at all. So that's not something you see. So that's something to keep in mind. That's a real piece of information. This was a football night. It was a party night, and whoever it was came in, got away. I'm thinking of somebody around the age of the peers and – Somebody that was dressed like their peers, however, they would have had to not had blood on them, you think. But they wouldn't have had, if they had hunting fatigues, maybe they would have stood out. This is right near a frat house. you think they would have been wearing some blue jeans and a polo top. So that's just some food for Basically, thought. Basically, yeah. I, I have some questions for you here. 
uh, from the chat room. Does he know Steve, uh, L-E-R-I-G-E, Steve Lurge or Darlene Combs? I'm horrible with names and great with faces. Um, the names very vaguely seem familiar, maybe. <laughs> sure. But don't hold me to that one way or the other. And Psychic said ex-military. Let's see. Oh. All right. Uh, I've lost the questions. Hold on. Okay, there we go. Psychic said ex-military. Uh, hold on. Somebody, somebody runs the town. I had another real good question here. Ah, uh, black clothes—you couldn't see blood. Good point. Okay, there's another good question. I'm trying to find it. I lost it. Hey, uh, someone that had a question, retype your question. I can't find it. The chat room's going too too big, going too fast for me. Oh my. And then you get all the questions re-asked. <laughs> well, that's fine as long as they're at the bottom of it and not the top of it. Does he know the police chief in Moscow? Or do you know of him? Do you know him or of him? I know of him uh, indirectly again, and the word incompetent is continually attached to that name. And that was before the murders? Yes. Okay, that's an important piece. Hey, this is a question, and this is this is a good one for you. What's the best brand survival food? Mountain House, hands down. Absolutely. The, the two top companies you'll find is Mountain House or a company called Honeyville. That's exactly how you hear it sound, Honeyville, one word together. Uh, Mountain House, otherwise known as a subsidiary of Oregon Freeze Dry, invented freeze drying completed meals. There is no better company in the world. Everyone else just tries to copy them. It uh, doesn't mean other companies aren't decent quality. It just means they are the best. Uh, Honeyville focuses on larger containers up to n- number 10 size cans of it, what are known as individual components, freeze drying and dehydrated foods. I know from personal experience in both cases, both companies, their foods last decades. So you get food from either of them, as long as you don't boil it in the summer sun, it'll uh, be good enough for your grandkids to eat. I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in tonight. I'm going to have a link to Survival Enterprises, which Eric Wilson and his mother continue to run. I'll put a link to that in the description below. I want to thank you all for watching us. It's really, it's a humbling experience to be able to share time with you and uh, conversing with you guys means a whole lot to me. I want to thank Eric. Um, I want to, I do want to say this, that whenever I have a guest up there, I appreciate, and you guys have, I'm not attacking you from whatever I've seen you guys are, but I respect and I appreciate you guys respecting the person I have here on panel. They might have different uh, beliefs than you. That's Okay you know, let them talk and we want to hear what everybody has to say, uh, no matter what their beliefs are. Um, and like I said, if you don't listen to someone else, to the things they have to say, and you're only believing the things that you believe you're a dumbass because you're going to have something wrong and there's no way to ever correct yourself. But again, we're wanting to know 
about this specific place here in Idaho, and we want to know what everybody thinks there at that place. They think different than us. They're different than us. I knew that from listening to his father all these years, but I, I, w- I wasn't ever able to have a full conversation about it. Eric, I appreciate it so much. And to have a You're little, welcome, Jerry. And uh, I think we're probably going to be, I'd like to have a conversation with you about more stuff in the future. You're a knowledgeable man. Uh, you're educated. You speak very well, and I appreciate your spending time with me. Well, thank you very much for having me. All right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I'd like to say a couple things about Kirk Wilson and I will send him off on this radio show throughout his life his one goal was to help others with the knowledge he garnered he took that knowledge and created a radio show called The Armchair Survivalist. He spent many an hour creating the show. He loved to impart his data to the many who listened. Of those who listened in his show, many would call and get his advice on what vitamins and other health products they could use to make them healthier. Kurt also had extensive knowledge of life and livingness and was well-read in many subjects. He loved to have discussions with customers who would come into the store This is one of the truest statements ever said of any man. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of The Armchair. On November 18th, 2021, a great warrior has passed from this battlefield into the next. He'll be missed greatly, for he was loved by his family and friends, respected by his peers, and feared by his enemies, as it should be. All who knew him treasured their memories. For not often is it you ever meet great warriors in a modern area. Men like he would have had songs sung for their deeds. Others would boast of his accomplished glory. All while he would simply move along the road of life, going to aid the next undiscovered friend he encountered. Just as if he'd known them his whole life. Kurt Wilson, everybody. The armchair survivalist. to send him off whenever one of my friends on the radio passes the last person who passed was my father and now it's Kurt we do something we like to call sending somebody off military style so if you would please bear with me as we do that for Kurt Actually, instead of that, let's do something else. Instead of sending Kurt off military style, let's send Kurt off his own way because that is the kind of person he was. He always went off his own way. We started with Bad Moon Rising. That was a song that he played all the time for the opening of his show. And he would play Brother Would You Spare a Dime at the end, so... Let's do that. 
This is the Armchair Survivalist. Pay attention to what's going on out there. Keep your nose in the air and your ear to the ground, and I'll theoretically see you next week. Tell me I was building a dream With peace and glory ahead Why should I be standing in line Just waiting for bread Once I built a railroad Made it run Made it race against time once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower to the sun, brick and rivet and lime. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once in cocky suits, gee, we looked swell, full of that Yankee doodle-dum. Half a million boots went slogging through hell And I was the kid with a drum Say, don't you remember, they called me Al It was Al all the time Say, don't you remember, I'm your pal Buddy, can you spare a dime? Uh, I'm crying playing that because it's really sad when you have someone that does radio and they do it every week they do it consistently because it comes up to the point when all you have is one last episode and you never hear of the person again Kurt deserve better than that I'd like to thank you all for tuning in we're going to be back tomorrow evening at 5pm Central Standard Time we're going to go over some of the things you guys sent me about the vehicles, you you guys make me really think it is fake. We're going to go over that. We're going to go over if the blood going down the 
the um, the house was fake or not. And, of course, we're going to have to talk about Banfield, your girl Banfield and Nick Mel. We got that and a whole lot more. 325-261-0892. Guys, uh, leave me your voicemail messages. You're going to be able to call in the next show. Thank you, guys. I'm humbled that you're here. I appreciate it. Until next time, all my best.